bring a Bible tonight, we encourage you to look at the screen. We'll have those verses up for you, but try to take some notes, do something so that you can go home and find it in your Bible. I'm a very strong believer in, uh, in people checking out what I say and checking out what's preached because, you know, um, it's not opinion that gets you born, born again. It's not opinion that delivers you. It's the Word of God that will do the work. So if you're faithful to say, okay, I'm going to take my Bible home, I'm going to take my notebook home, I'm going to read it and study it for myself. I'm going to get a little bit more than I got the first time. I guarantee God will speak to you. And so let's do that. And so I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. For those of you that have been coming on Wednesday nights, we've been going verse by verse through the book of 2 Corinthians. I hope you've been enjoying it as much as I have. Um, I hope you've been learning a lot. 2 Corinthians has those really shouting moments, you know, those, those moments that get you on your feet excited. And then it has those moments where you learn something about the heart of God. There's, it has those moments where you learn something about uh, the life of a believer. You learn something about ministry. There are times in 2 Corinthians where you almost feel a little sad for the Apostle Paul. Uh, but that's not what you're supposed to walk away with. What I want you to walk away with is knowing who you are in Christ, knowing that he cares deeply for you, knowing that if you're called to ministry, or if you're called to anything, we're all called to a sort of ministry, aren't we? We're all called to, called to our own ministry. And if you're called, God can equip you for that task, and he will equip you. So if we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I want to remind you where we left off. Where we left off, there was a trip planned uh, for Paul and his, his company, his comrades, to go to the church in Corinth to visit them. And it got changed. There were some circumstances that came up, and it got changed. And um, to give you a little bit of background, there was some stuff that went on in the church. Of course, we know that there were some folks that came in that tried to sway the church to, to desert, uh, desert the gospel, desert the Apostle Paul to go a different way. But there was another thing that happened, and we'll talk about it a little bit. But there was some, some, bad, uh, some bad situations that came up that are addressed partially in 1 Corinthians, uh, there was some just straight-out sin um, that wasn't just little minor mistakes. There was some stuff that was taking place that was being known by all and tolerated by all that really shouldn't have had any place in the body of Christ. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But I believe what you'll walk away with tonight, if we hear what the Word says, is you're going to walk away with a greater sense of God's mercy. You're going to walk away with a greater sense of God's plan of restoration. You're going to walk away with the greatest, greater sense of God's love for you, but also uh, our, our responsibility to each other as members of the body of Christ. Let's read what it says. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1 says, But I determined this for my own sake. And what he's talking about is not to visit them again quite so soon. I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow... Who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? In other words, if I make you sad, and I just go visit a bunch of sad people trying to make me happy, and that's not going to work out. He says, this is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Now I want you to imagine this. This is the Apostle Paul who writes eloquent letters. Now, when I say it's the Apostle Paul, I want you to understand that we believe, as the Scripture says, that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. 
So God is speaking through the Apostle Paul, but there's a human element here as well. God used the Apostle Paul, but of course, you understand that, every, that as he wrote these scriptures, he wrote these letters, the Holy Spirit was telling him what to write, and yet he's still a human, and he has human emotions. And when he had to write them about some things that needed to be fixed in the church, about some things that really needed to be corrected. In fact, in a moment, we'll go back and we'll read one of those situations. But as he writes them, it's not a happy letter. You know, you, you wish you could always send people happy letters. You wish you could always make a happy phone call. You wish every counseling session was just a happy counseling session. I don't know if those exist. If they do, they're not called counseling sessions, are they? <laughs> they're just, let's get together. I've got some good things to tell you. But usually, if it's a counseling session, it's, it's kind of like, you know, taking your car to the shop to be repaired. Things aren't going great. And so as he writes this letter, you see the heart of, a, of an apostle. You see the heart of a pastor. Because as he writes this letter, he's, no, he's taking no joy in, in what he has to write. There's some things that are going on that, that requires some sternness, that required some discipline. And yet, he says, as I was writing this letter, I was crying while I wrote it. Can you imagine that letter that got sent, it's tear, stained with tears, it's, it's maybe written a little bit sloppy because as he's writing it, he's feeling much anguish with many tears. He said, I didn't want you to be made sorrowful, but that you may know the love which I have especially for you. See, the letter he wrote to them, we don't know if this is just 1 Corinthians that he's talking about, or some people say there was a letter in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that he's referring to. But whatever this letter was, it, he knew it was going to cause them some sorrow. And in 2 Corinthians 7, we find out that that sorrow was necessary so that they would repent. But it doesn't mean he took any joy in it. In fact, he was torn up about it. I've been here. I've known what that's like. I've known what it's like to have to go and, and correct somebody, and, and you feel anguish for what they're going through. But you know that if you let it just keep going, it's going to get worse and worse. Nobody likes to get in that situation where you have to get in somebody's face and tell them they're wrong. The people that do like that shouldn't be pastors, right? There are people that like that. There are people that love that. There are people that like to tell people how wrong they are. I'm not one of those people because you love people. You realize sometimes you do have to help them. Sometimes there does need to be correction. Sometimes there does need to be a rebuke, as the Scripture says, but you take no joy in it. What you take joy in is the outcome, the fruit of repentance, the fruit of a life turned back to God. Just for reference sake, can we turn to 1 Corinthians 5? Now, he's going to refer to an event that happened, and we're not sure whether this event is the event he's talking about. But we can be sure of this. If it's not this event, it's one that's similar. And I want you to see what happens in 1 Corinthians 5. There's a situation that should never have been allowed to go on, but it was, and nobody really wanted to say anything because it was awkward. And here's what happens. 1 Corinthians 5.1, he says, it's actually reported. Well, let me, let me read the, the verse before this chapter starts. He says in 1 Corinthians 4.21, he says, what do you desire? Shall I come, with, come at you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Then he says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you. Now, this word for immorality is used almost specifically for a sexual immorality. This immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. So he's saying, even in the world, 
this would be frowned upon. This is not just something that Christians shouldn't do. He's saying this is something that even in the world is bad. I mean, even the world doesn't do this stuff. He says even the Gentiles don't do this, that someone has his father's wife. So this is happening in the church. Somebody has started shacking up with his dad's wife. Now, I'm assuming the mother died at some point. The dad got remarried. And the son hooks up with the, the dad's wife. That's an awkward situation, isn't it? You know, it's even awkward. More awkward. This guy obviously was not just somebody that was attending the church sitting in the back row. This was a guy that was a member of the church. You know, we all know what this is like. Everybody probably just felt a little bit too weird to be the one to say, this isn't right. So everybody just let it happen. Nobody said anything. Do you know, even though nobody said anything to this guy, it was being talked about people outside the church knew it. The people outside the church say, you guys preach this stuff, but this is what you do? Your actions aren't matching your words. Have you ever heard somebody complain that the church is full of hypocrites? Well, it's not necessarily true. The world is full of hypocrites. There are hypocrites everywhere. The only guy I can find that never was a hypocrite was Jesus Christ. So I recommend you put your faith in him. But even so, as believers... As the scripture says, we we look to shed hypocrisy and be like Jesus, right? So the world is seeing this, but everybody in the church is just a little too tender to say anything about it. Maybe this guy was one of those guys you didn't want to get in an argument with. Maybe he's one of those guys very defensive. Maybe he's one of those guys that had some influence in the church, and you figure, who am I to talk to this guy? Somebody should have done something, but nobody did. Verse 2, he says this, You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. What did he say? He said there should have been a, a mourning that this was taking place. You, should, you become arrogant and say, well, it doesn't matter. We're doing fine. He says you should not have felt like you were doing fine. And this should have been removed. He says, for I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this so as, so as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus When you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Whoa, what in the world is he talking about? That's a crazy verse. Deliver someone to Satan? What in the world do you mean? You've got to understand, he does not mean, nor did he have the authority to say, hey, Satan, come over here. I'm giving you a person. That's not what happened. What's he saying? Well, he says in the verse before, and you'll see it in the verses following, what his interpretation of that is, you, you tell him that he has to leave the church. Until he, until he can stop doing this, he has to get out of here. If he refuses to repent, you see, church is not a place for perfect people. It's a place for all of us, right? It's a place where sick people come in the world. It's a place where messed up people come and find healing. Church is not for the people that already have it difference between somebody saying I'm headed that way, I've still got mistakes, I've still got mess ups, I've still got flaws, but I'm reaching and the Lord's working on me and I'm on the road there's a difference between that and the arrogance of rebellion where this guy he's not saying Lord's helping me I'm getting better and better, this guy's saying what do you have a problem with this this guy knows it's wrong but he refuses to change do you understand the difference because many of you, 
the last thing I want you to do for you right now is to feel all condemned and say, uh-oh, they might kick me out. They're going to kick me out if they only knew. We all could be kicked out if that were the, the criteria, right? And if we were kicking all the sick people out of the hospital, what's the point of having the hospital? Right? The point isn't that somebody's got some sin in their life. The point is he refused to change. He knew it was wrong. He looked God in the face and said, no. He looked everybody else in the face and said, what are you going to do? I had a friend who I remember the moment. This when I was a teenager. I remember the moment this guy decided to test what I would say in a certain situation. I had noticed he had started kind of hanging out with a different group of friends, and his, his life had just kind of gone a little bit off, and I still was loving him. I, I was still trying to be there for him, but I noticed he was going further and further away from the things that he once believed in, the, in, the, in the relationship with God he once had. I remember sitting at the table with him and some other Christian youth, and I remember there was something, there was a standard he had, and we talked about it. And I remember he brought up this issue, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, but he brought up this issue that, that a year before he would, have just, he would have just stayed away from. He would have had nothing to do with it. But at the table, he brought it up. And he looked me directly in the eye as he said it. And you knew he wasn't just making conversation. What he was doing was saying, I'm going to say something about this. He was putting it out there to see if I was going to have anything to say about it. Of course, I wasn't just going to knock him down, beat him up. I loved him. I wanted him to be restored. I didn't want him to see it go down this path. But we had to have a conversation after that because I realized that there are plenty of times where somebody does something or says something where they're testing to see, what do you believe about this? And if I said nothing, it was going to be taken as tacit approval. You're, you're okay with this. Because the reason he said it was to put me on the spot. And nobody likes to be put in that position, do we? Those are times where you have to decide, do I love this person? If I don't love them, I don't care. If I do love them, I don't care. Is it my place to condemn them? No, it's not. Is it my place to say, hey, man, I don't think that's a good path to go down. You know, you know your standards. You know what the Word says. I think that's when we can help each other. It says, desire, decided to deliver such one to Satan. In other words, we've desired, decided to Send them out into the world. And life's not going to be easy out there. There's going to be some things that aren't going to be nice. But the hope is, remember, here's the reason. He doesn't say, we've decided to do this just because he needs to be punished. Is that why he does it? We've decided to do this so he learns his lesson. We've decided to do this so justice could be done. No, he says, we're doing this. I'm doing this. And here's the reason so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, I'm doing this because I care about the man. My goal is to see him restored. My goal is to see him come to repentance. In the next verse, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? In other words, if you allow this guy to continue to do it and nobody says anything, don't be surprised till it leaks onto other people. 
Don't be surprised till you see it happen in this family in a, maybe a little bit of a different situation. But that same issue keeps cropping up in the church because no one addressed it. I've only been pastoring for eight years, but I've seen it in other churches where something was allowed to go on. Nobody said anything about it. And it started out small, and it just began to get bigger and spread throughout the congregation because it just became okay. We see this in entertainment, guys. We, I mean, the TV shows, the movies we watch. What we tolerate will eventually be celebrated. You tolerate, and we, because it's funny or because it was entertaining, we go ahead and buy that movie that celebrates adultery because, hey, it all turned out in the end. Eventually, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal when this happens. It's not a big deal when this happens. You know, guys, we know there's forgiveness for that. There's a big, there's a big gap between saying you can be forgiven and you don't even need to be forgiven. That's cool. Big gap between those two things, right? So he says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump boy. <laughs> How would you like to be called that? But you, know what, you know what I think our church is? Here's the word for 2013. We're a new lump. You know, <laughs> put it on the sign. We're changing our name, New Lump. All right. <laughs> Nobody wants to be called that. Women, do you want to be called that? Boy, you look like a New Lump. That's uh, praise the Lord. But he says, here's the deal. Like he's talking about dough. He's, he's saying, you, you know, you had that little leaven, but he says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. Now here's a key verse. Just as you are in fact unleavened. What's he saying? He's saying the truth of the matter is, you are righteous by Jesus Christ. You are unleavened. Now you need to start living like it because that's who you are. He doesn't say clean it out so you will be unleavened. He says you in fact are unleavened. And if you got a revelation of that, if you got a revelation of who you were in Christ, you wouldn't keep going back to your old vomit. You know that you've been redeemed. You know that you're righteous by the blood of Jesus. Stop living like you're not. And he says for Christ, why? Why can I be considered unleavened? I I'll explain that to you. In the Old Testament, when they did the Passover feast, they cleaned out all the leaven in the house. In fact, it was a game. The little kids would go throughout the house and try to find any trace of leaven. So that's why they had that flat bread at Passover. That's why at communion, it's like crunch, you know. It's not a big chunk of bread. It's flat. Because leaven in that, in that metaphor, in that symbolism, symbolized sin. And so the bread had to be unleavened because it was to, it was to symbolize the unleavened, the sinless body of Christ which would be broken for us. And so he says, in this, in this situation, leaven is representing sin. He says, why am I unleavened? Because Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. The reason I am with, the reason I can say I'm righteous, the reason I can be free of sin is because Christ was crucified for me. So then he says in the next verse, Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Big thought. He says in the next verse, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. This is a tough verse because if you misinterpret this, you think you just need to, you just need to hang out with your holy friends and never touch anybody else. That's not what he's talking about. In this context, he's talking about people that know the truth 
and refuse to do it. See, because if we just stopped, stopped touching anybody that didn't have their lives perfect together, how in the world would we be Jesus to a lost and broken world? Jesus that went out and found the sinners and spent time with them. Right? If we want to emulate Jesus, we can't just stay away from sinners, can we? No. We've got to know that we were saved by grace. We were in the same boat. But here's the deal. There's a difference between that and somebody that knows better and refuses. It's not, I'm not talking about somebody that's struggling with it. I'm not talking about somebody that's yet to overcome it, but they're working on it. I'm talking about somebody that's arrogant and says, I don't have to. There's a difference. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all, so he wants to make this clear, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. In other words, he says, if I was telling you to just not touch anybody that had sin in their life, you'd have to just go to heaven because, I mean, you can't live in the world and not be around anybody like that. He says in the next verse, but actually... I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. What's he telling us? He's telling us probably the brother he's talking about never really got born again. Probably this guy kept showing up at church but refusing to really ever turn his life to Jesus. This is just somebody that wants to play the game, wants to scope out the women at church, but doesn't ever really want to be a part of it. Doesn't ever want to give his life to Jesus. He says, I don't want you to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person. So he's not talking about the world. He's talking about people in the church, right? A covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? <laughs> this is a revelation to some of us. God didn't call you to judge outsiders. I know people go out with the picket signs and tell all the world to change their ways. But you and I know they can't change their ways without Jesus. Right? How in the world are they supposed to change their ways? How in the world are they supposed to stop sinning if they don't know Jesus? How did we? How could you? Jesus is the one that set us free. So you go out into the world and you tell people Jesus will accept you if you get your life right? That's backwards. Because you can't get your life right without Jesus. The beauty of the gospel is he accepted us before we had our life right. And it's through him that we can get our life right. And we've, we've all still got ways to go, haven't we? But thank God that he didn't judge us before we came to him. He accepted us freely. But he says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Verse 13. But those who are outside, God judges. Let God deal with that. But he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So here's the thought. I don't want anybody to be quaking in your chair tonight. <laughs> I'm being spotted. <laughs> the, the usher's taking notes. Here's the thought. The goal is that this man would come to know Jesus and give his life over to Jesus and truly surrender his will. The goal is that this man would be saved. This goal, that, that this guy would... would turn from his sin and turn to the right way. But he refused to do that when confronted. So if he refused to do that when confronted, you don't just leave it alone. He says, you've got you to tell him he has to leave. And he can come back when he decides that he's in it for you. It's not the appropriate, I know none of us feel like shouting right now, but that's, you know, the, I want you to know that the goal was not punishment. 
goal was restoration. And I want us to see that in 2 Corinthians. We'll go back to our, our verse, 2 Corinthians 2. He said this <clears throat> in verse 5, But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. First, I want you to see something. What we see here is that this fella whether there's the same thing that he talked about in 1 Corinthians or not, I don't know. But whoever he's talking about, it worked. It worked. He changed. Something turned. And it's so wonderful to see the spirit of restoration here because Paul, as he's writing this, won't even name the guy. Doesn't even say what he did. In fact, he says, I don't want to say too much. Do you see that? Do you see the heart of God? is to not expose your nakedness to the world, is to not expose your sin to the world, but rather to take care of it and then to say, I don't want you to have to deal with that again. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament. We may not know this. I mean, you know the story of Noah, right? You know the story of Noah and the ark? Noah was a righteous man, wasn't he? You know, in children's church, they never told me the story about how he got off the ark and a few... I don't know, days, weeks, or months later, he got really, really drunk. That didn't come up in children's church. There were no, he got drunk and he got naked. And there were no flannel graphs for that, thank God. There were no skits, no puppets. I didn't know that story. It wasn't in my picture Bible. Don't know why. But what's interesting is what happens from there. You know, God didn't want him to get drunk and get naked in front of everybody, right? I mean, if you think he did, you and I need a discussion about who we think God is. God didn't want that. But at the same time, there were two different reactions. His son Ham did something. His son Ham saw him naked. And instead of covering him and taking care of him, he went and got his brothers and said, you guys got to check this out. And he said, look at this guy, dad's naked. <laughs> he's wasted. And, he's naked. and the other brothers did the honorable thing. They turned their backs to him. They wouldn't even look at him. And they covered him. They covered his shame from others, and they covered his shame from themselves. And as they covered him, they brought him to the tent. And they, clothed him. They, they, they did it so they wouldn't have to cause him any more shame when he went so. And God said to him, you've caused your descendants trouble because of this. Your descendants are going to have to serve your brothers because of this thing. Because of the lack of honor that you showed. You see, God's heart, yeah, did Noah mess up? Yeah, he did. But God's heart was not to humiliate Noah and expose him to the world and never let anybody forget. God's heart that shame. Should he have done it? No. But God's heart was not just to say, forget you, you messed up once, you're never going to be used again. God honored the sons that said, I understand, you should never have done this. But we're going to prevent you from being caused further humiliation. The body of Christ has, have to, has to have the same heart as God. But when someone messes up Thank God there should be repentance. It shouldn't be allowed to go on and spread. 
But when there is repentance, there needs to be such a heart of restoration. And you have to have the same heart that Paul shows here. I'm not even going to talk about it anymore. You know, there are going to be people that you know that mess up big time. And it's going to be a fun story to tell. It's going to be an interesting story to tell. And you've got to choose not to tell it. Once that person turns, and you really shouldn't even talk about it before they turn out. But especially once that person turns around. You treat it like God treats it. It's under the blood. It doesn't exist anymore. I refuse to talk to other people about it. It's over. It's over. He says this. And he has caused you sorrow. He caused sorrow not to me but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Verse 6, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. What did the majority do? They told me I didn't. And he said that was punishment enough. Verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort. That's big, isn't it? You should forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For for to this end I also wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no one would take advantage of us by Satan, but we are not ignorant of his schemes. Do you see this? So once this guy's turned around, he says, you need to comfort him. You need to forgive him. You need to reaffirm your love for him. Because here's, he says, we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. What's one of Satan's schemes? What Satan would love to happen is for you to mess up. And Satan doesn't mind if you realize it and stop as long as you stay pinned under the guilt and shame of it. Even if you stopped sinning, Satan could still have a victory if you stay home too ashamed to show your face, feeling guilty, not, not feeling like you're not worthy to talk to God. You're not worthy to be around other believers. You're not worthy of fellowship anymore. You've you just somehow been, been knocked down the totem pole of Christianity. Oh yeah, he'd love that you know what God loves? He loves to see you restored back to fellowship with Him and with your brothers and sisters. So we have a part to play. Whether you're that person or you're the person on the outside who sees this happening, our job is when that person turns, you go and you overwhelm that person with love so that they won't be overwhelmed with sorrow. Because the Bible says, we're going to read it a few weeks later in 2 Corinthians 7, but he says there that the sorrow, according to the will of God, produces a repentance which leads to salvation without regret. But he says the sorrow of the world produces death. In other words, the sorrow that you feel when you're doing something you know God doesn't want you to do, that's supposed to be there. But it's only supposed to be there so you stop and you repent. If it keeps going, that's not godly. That's the sorrow of the world, and that produces death in your life. So what does he say? He says, we're not going to let Satan take advantage of us. We're not ignorant of his schemes, and we refuse to let this person stay pinned down under guilt and shame. We are going to overwhelm them and smother them with the love of God so that they know they're valuable, and they know they can be restored, and they know life's not over. We have our different levels of how 
bad somebody could be before we feel good about it, you know? All right, you, you only did that. Well, that's no big deal. There are certain things you go, oh, you did that. I don't know if you, I don't, I don't feel comfortable going out to lunch with you because I don't know if I really want you around my children. All right, all right. I'm not going to argue, but come on. At some point, get over it. You've got to be able to embrace somebody again. Because, you know what? They're not going to get better out on the fringe. On the outside of the camp, if healing is in the camp, healing, if the presence of God is truly in our midst, if God is here, and in His presence there's healing, and in His presence there's deliverance, and in His presence there is fullness of joy, if this is truly the body where limbs can be healed instead of being made lame, then people aren't going to get healed by you keeping them on the outside of the camp forced out there not to associate with anybody. You just stay on the outside till we know you've changed. You've got to give them a chance to come back. Let them know their love. And move on. God's heart is for restoration. I want to tell you there's a difference between the action that they took in this church and an action of punishment. So they took this action because this sin was rebellion. And it was straight out there. It was arrogant, and it was going to spread. So they had to say, you're going to have to leave. If you, if you're, if you refuse to, to honor the Lord, if you refuse to listen to him, you can't just stay here and just be open about this. But, you know, when they told that guy he had to leave until he could come back, and he was willing to follow Jesus, their goal was not to punish the man. And I'll tell you, we have to, be really aware that all of our punishment for sin was laid on the body of Jesus when he was on that cross. There are consequences. There are sometimes steps to restoration, right? It's like if you were if you were ministering from this platform, if you were singing on the stage, playing an instrument, you're ministering to the children and you had a major, major slip-up, like a big one, you might need some time where you take some time off where you're not ministering to people for a while. But that's not punishment. That's restoration. Right? There's a difference. Because I have no right to punish you for something that Jesus already paid for. I have no place to lay on you the blood debt for what Jesus paid so much for. He paid the price for us. So I, this isn't about punishment. What they did wasn't about punishment. It was about saving the church. It was about, it was about caring for others. It was about love for the man. But it wasn't about punishing the man. It wasn't about the scales of justice. I gotta tell you, when I was a kid, I loved justice. Part of it was because I was a pastor's kid. Everybody always looked at me all the time. I had to live up to a certain standard. And so I got to the point where I thought, hey, I'm living up to a certain standard. I must be special. I must be God's favorite, at least in children's church. Because I can win Bible baseball every time. 
and you start comparing yourself with other people and going, I look pretty good, huh? <laughs> I'm doing all right. And I, guys, I've got to tell you, I'm going to be really honest with you. Please don't judge me for it because I've, I've really turned around. But I remember being in like in, in fourth grade and I was a girl that kept like getting up from her desk and the teacher said, if you get up from your desk one more time, I'm going to do this. And I'm sitting at my desk going, because I want to see what happens. I want to see her get it. I want to see her get There was a kid in my first grade class that got seat belted to his chair. That couldn't happen today. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> because turns out he was in Levi's grade too. He, he spent a lot of time in grade one. But <laughs> he, got, he got belted to the desk. And I got to admit, I liked that. And I don't know why. I feel bad about it. But I was like, this is awesome. This is kind of cool. I love to see somebody get what's coming. I remember as a boy reading, reading The Prince and the Pauper. Have you read that book? Anybody read that book? A couple. Uh, reading The Prince and the Pauper. And my favorite part of the book, this is a, a book where, the, I believe it was by Mark Twain, right? I think so. Who's going to correct me, right? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's going on the Internet. Somebody might. But I believe it was by Mark Twain. And the, the thing was there was a, there was a poor kid and there was a prince, and they, they looked exactly alike, coincidence of coincidences. And so they traded places. It was a precursor to all a bunch of Disney movies. And, and so they traded places, and, um, and so the, 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 the prince lived as a poor kid for a while. And my favorite part of the book, he was, he was treated real bad because everybody thought he was a beggar. My favorite part of the book was when he got to come back as the prince and get everybody who treated him bad as a, as a pauper and they got what was coming to him. He's like, no, I'm back, and I'm the prince, and you're going to pay for what you did to me. And I loved it because re- justice was being done. Do you know that was not a good attitude to have? You all know this, right? It's what I, did. I didn't delight in justice. I kind of wanted to see revenge. In that sense, I became a little bit too much like the prodigal son's older brother. Eerily so. My heart, my heart had to be changed that I began to understand I needed forgiveness as much as everybody else. I needed mercy as much as everybody else. You know, the problem comes in when you compare yourself with other people instead of comparing yourself with Jesus. So he's our example. The Bible says if you compare yourself among yourselves, you're not wise. I was at Sobeys uh, a few months ago and I wasn't thinking. My phone rang just out of habit, I picked it up, and I was driving out of the parking lot, and I picked it up, and I'm like, oh, because right as I picked it up and said hello, there's a policeman with a siren next to me, oh no, and he's got his lights on, so I rolled my window down and said, where do you want me to go, I'm, I'm trying to be nice, you know, where do you want me to, because we were at an intersection, so I couldn't just stop there, where do you want me to park, and he, he goes to me, he goes, yeah, yeah, he goes, no, the lady ahead, I'm after the lady ahead of you, she's texting, that's worse, and I remember going, yes, I was so happy she was worse than me. You know, thank God there are worse sinners than me. Sometimes we live like that. You know, Jesus told the story of the Pharisee that said, you know, looked at the, looked at the, the beggar and said, thank God I'm not as bad as him. You know, we live like that, but God is not grading on a curve. His standard is I'm holy. Be holy as I'm holy. That's his standard. It says we've all 
sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we all need forgiveness. We all need grace. We all need the mercy of God. And when you realize that, you've got a lot more to give to somebody else. Because as long as you think, we said this on Sunday, as long as you think you've earned it, you make everybody else earn it for you. But when you know, I needed, I needed that grace, I needed that forgiveness, then you're willing to give it to somebody else. The Bible says the one who's forgiven much is aware of the goodness of God. The mistake is to think you weren't forgiven much because you didn't do it bad. Here's the truth. We all were forgiven much. Much more than we could ever pay. And so when someone turns... Here's Jesus' response. He said, when one man turns, all the angels in heaven rejoice. This is the same Jesus that left 99 sheep. They were fine. He wasn't leaving them to a God. But he left 99 sheep to go after one. There's nobody that's expendable in the body of Christ. I want to read you something in Galatians 5. I hope you're still with me here. Galatians 5. Did I say Galatians 5? I did, but that's not what I meant. I meant Galatians 6. Is that okay? You forgive me, right? You're going to restore me with gentleness? All right. Galatians 6, he says, brethren, and when he says brethren, he means sisters too. We're all family, right? Brothers and sisters, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, I want you to hear that phrase, you who are spiritual, should we be spiritual? See, in the previous chapter, he's talked about the difference of walking by the flesh and walking by the spirit. And he told you the fruit of the flesh, and he told you the fruit of the spirit. So we all should be the spiritual ones, right? says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. There's a word we don't talk a lot about. It's mentioned the chapter before as one of the fruits of the spirit, gentleness. Restore, if somebody is caught in a big, bad situation, they've done something really bad, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Each one of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. You've got to make sure you don't fall into the same trap they fell into, right? For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So you know my problem when I was thinking I, I had it all together? I thought I was something when I wasn't. said, anybody who thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Without him, we are nothing. Verse 4, but each one must examine his own work. Then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. So here's the thought. And we'll go back to that first verse where he says, if anybody is caught in a trespass, your job is not to forever make them pay for that. Your job is to restore them in the spirit of justice. We have to share the heart of Jesus on this one. Sometimes we think we're doing everybody a favor just by ignoring things. Right? But we know we're not. We learned that in the situation of the fellow that we talked about in 1 Corinthians, he was arrogantly continuing in something that should have been stopped a long time ago, and it was going to spread. Love is not overlooking everything and just saying, it'll go away if we ignore it. 
I've talked about this before, but I've known people who refused to go to the hospital. They, had, they found something in their body that wasn't right. And they weren't even believing God for healing. They just refused to go to the hospital because they were afraid if they went to the doctor, the doctor would tell them something's wrong. But you and I both know that doesn't make it go away. The moment the doctor says you have something wasn't the moment you got it. You saw you already had it, right? So if we ignore something long enough, it doesn't make it go away. Sometimes you have to love somebody enough to say, you keep heading down that path, it goes off the cliff. When that's done, when their eyes are open, it is our responsibility to be like our Savior, to remember how much we were forgiven, and to restore that person. And what did it say in 2 Corinthians? I want you to comfort them. I want you to forgive them. I want you to overwhelm them, reaffirm your love for them. That's a big one, right? Because you know it's a big one for me because I figure once I've told you what I think of you, once I've told you how much I love you, you should remember that. Now, I don't do that to my wife. I tell her I love her every day. But a lot of times there's other people in my life that I kind of take for granted. I've already told them. I've already said, you know, I, I really appreciate you. That should be good for a couple years, right? You know, but, but the truth is there are moments in people's lives where the enemy has come to put sorrow onto them, to make them feel like they're not loved anymore, to make them feel like nobody cares anymore, to make them feel like they blew it for the last time. And the heart of God says, you go and you reaffirm your love for that person. Because that love is what's going to restore them. That love is what's going to build them up again. That love is going to bring them back into a place where they can be used by much as we like to believe this is all theory, right? It's just all Bible theory that we'll never have to use. I guarantee you'll have to use this at some point. Right? <laughs> Unless we're just the bubble people that try to shelter ourselves from anybody else, it's going to happen. Don't worry. God has a plan. God's already got the the contingency plan. He's got, a, he's got orders for you. There's a way to handle it. So, as we went through this chapter, I hope you didn't think, well, I'm never going to use it. Chances are you will. And when you do, I want you to know that everything we do has to be grounded in love of Jesus Christ. If we're not correcting somebody in love, we should be if you feel you need to tell somebody what they're doing wrong and the reason you're telling them what they're doing wrong is just because you want to be right, don't do it. The only time you should ever step into somebody's life is if you genuinely feel you have a place to do that and you genuinely love them. If you don't love them, stay out. Because all you're doing is poking somebody while they're down. But if you love them, you'll pick them up. If you love them, you'll bear the burden with them. If you love them, you'll be strong with them. Amen? Stand up together. Isn't God good? Tonight, I want you to know you've got a safety net here. You've got a family around you. You've got people around you that love you. If you ever fall into a trap, the enemy would love for you to just fight that battle alone. I know far too many young men stayed addicted to Internet pornography because they were afraid to tell anybody about it. There are far too many women that were afraid to admit they were depressed every day because they thought if they tell somebody, it make them 
seem less spiritual. Don't let him put you in that place to think if somebody finds out I messed up, somebody finds out my life's not perfect, I'll never be allowed to be the same person. They'll never see me the same way again. We are the body of Christ. And when someone's down, we lift them up again. If they've got wounds, we bandage those wounds. We see the healing of God work in those places. His power is perfected in our weaknesses. Don't be ashamed but realize that the grace of God is big enough for all of us. Amen? Thank you, Father. we thank you for your word and for your light. Lord, I'm thankful. Although each and every one of us fell short of your glory, each and every one of us missed your mark, you were good enough to die for us. You loved us enough to pay the price for us so that we wouldn't have to live a life apart from you you brought us near. In the same way, there are those who have been driven apart from the body by their own decisions or by something else. We know, Lord, that your desire is that they be brought back near, back into fellowship with you, back into fellowship with one another. Lord, give us the, the grace and the humility to treat people like you treated us, with love, with forgiveness, with grace. Lord, that we wouldn't see ourselves as superior, but we'd see ourselves as just as needing of a Savior as they, as, as they need. Just as in need of a Savior. Just as in need of your grace. Just as in need of your forgiveness. That with humility of mind and heart, we say, I can help you. Because I've been there. Lord, if there's anybody here tonight that feels condemned, that feels beat up, that feels discouraged because they haven't felt like they've lived up to what they know, I ask, Lord, that you first of all strengthen them, that they can turn back to you and turn away from whatever's kept them in bondage. Lord, also I ask that you comfort their hearts and you use us to let them know that they're loved. They're greatly loved. They're not forsaken. They're not alone. They're not just thrown out because they think they're not good enough. They are. They're part of our body. They're part of your body, and that's not going to change. Thank you, Jesus. You're good to us. Than ever before.